After my last sermon, someone asked me why I referred to the psalmist as she. Actually, in that sermon, I spoke of the psalmist as he and she on purpose. Yet what I omitted to qualify in that sermon, I would like to clarify at the outset of this one. Regardless of the origin, origin or identifying the author of a given psalm, I think they are written in such a way that all of us can relate to the, their life experience and language as if it were our own. And since we're presenting this series as praying the Psalms, I will be making use of alternating pronouns to help us enter into the content of each one so that we might personalize its language in our own interaction with God. In his book, Praying the Psalms, Walter Brueggemann suggests a way of approaching them is to think of the Psalms in terms of expressing our life of faith in relationship to God as one of three movements, either being securely oriented, painfully disoriented, or surprisingly reoriented. I would like to explain what he means by each of these descriptions. Orientation represents our state of equilibrium or status quo. For a person of faith, it consists of being well settled and secure and knowing life makes sense. As in Robert Browning's famous line, God is in his heaven and all is right with the world. Psalm 145 is an example of this where the psalmist trusts everything to God and celebrates with confident, contented faith that life is good. Two weeks ago, Kent preached on Psalm 104, another psalm of orientation. It extols God's good creation, God's order, and God's life-sustaining provision as reflected in these lines. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to use to bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine, and bread to strengthen the human heart. Psalms of orientation are the least represented in the book of Psalms. The majority reflect prayers and songs occasioned by experience of either disorientation or reorientation, language that describes what it feels like to be overwhelmed nearly destroyed or surprisingly given new life. Psalms of disorientation or disorder represent events which drive us to the edge of our humanness, events that threaten and disrupt our conventional routines and remind us how precarious life is. The kind of experiences of life's deep discontinuities that preoccupies our attention with threat, fear, anxiety, loneliness, suffering, guilt, hatred, loss, and death. Each of us knows this kind of crisis or disorder, either as the breakup of a, of a marriage or a friendship, the loss of a loved one, an unwanted medical diagnosis, financial insecurity, disruption from a wildfire, or isolation brought on by the coronavirus. Life experiences that go beyond our frail efforts to control them 
and beyond our conventional means of coping. When life goes wrong, we tend to choose words that deny or suppress our experience in favor of presenting a positive or false front, speech that serves to cover up what is truly happening. Psalms of disorientation disclose life is not like that. They reveal our current experience is not one of well-being, but of a churning disruptive experience of dislocation. The honesty of these psalms have a way of opening us up toward God. If we're going to pray the psalms correctly, Brueggemann says we must take into account how they function. Thus, he says, I suggest that most of the psalms can only be appropriately prayed by people who are living at the edge of their lives, sensitive to the raw hurts, the primitive passions, and the naive elations that are at the bottom of our life. People who are willing to depart from the closely managed world of public survival to move into the open, frightening, healing world of speech with the Holy One." End quote. Last week, Emily walked us through the difficult language of Psalm 137, a psalm of disorientation. She explained to us this lament over the destruction of Jerusalem and the disheartening experiences of people displaced and taken into exile. Recall these words at the opening. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. There our, our captors asked us for songs. How could we sing the Lord's song? in a foreign land. Well, we've had a sermon by Kent on, on a psalm of orientation, a, a sermon by Emily on a psalm of disorientation. And now this brings us to the third movement, Brueggemann describes as psalms of reorientation, an example of which will be our text for today. Better than the term reorientation is to think of these psalms as new orientation. The reason is they are quite unlike the old or previous status quo. The future is not a return to normalcy as though nothing ever happened. Rather, it's marked by an, an element of surprise, of something new and unexpected. These psalms always speak of God's gift of grace resulting in a life-giving, reordering experience. And these psalms always evoke expressions of gratitude. The gift may come in the form of unseen friendship or care, gestures of forgiveness and reconciliation, or signposts of hope fulfilled. Whatever form grace comes in, it announces that God has, never, has not left the world to chaos. Psalms of new orientation are distinct because they use language of praise and thanks, which celebrates God's abiding rule or timely intervention. Psalm 103 is a beloved psalm that sings of God's grace and the recipient's gratitude. The writer has experienced God's grace in the form of forgiveness, which has reordered his existence. 
It's not so much a matter of having his life back as it is realizing his life has changed for the better. This prayer song pulsates from deep within his being till he implores heaven and earth to join in its refrain of praise. Let's hear it read for us by Lee Creighton. Today's reading is from Psalm 103, the New Revised Standard Version. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good as long as you live, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? The Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. As for mortals, their days are like grass. They flourish like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, obedient to his spoken word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers that do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In group settings, I sometimes ask this sharing question. What compliment have you received that has meant something to you and why? Someone said to me once that the reason they returned having visited our church for the first time is that I preached grace. That meant a great deal to me. But even more important than the theme or subject of grace for me is that a person knows it as a life-altering experience. The difference of knowing God loves you not because you deserve to be loved or feel you have earned it in some way, but rather you have been shown love and acceptance when you expected something quite different. When in the midst of tragedy, you were startled by a feeling of inexplicable joy. 
when you've braced yourself for the worst possible news only to receive something far beyond what you imagined or hoped for. Once your life has been reordered in this way by God's grace, you become sensitive to other manifestations of it, sometimes in the most unlikely settings. I saw it once on a Little League baseball field. Like most of all American life, this activity can be as much of a proving ground as it is a playground for youngsters. When our son Mark played Mustang baseball in Monterey, it was the last division before the competitive stage when skilled players were advanced to the next level and everyone else was expected to find a better use of their time. That particular day was the last game of the season. Our team was down 12 to four with little hope of winning or being advanced to the playoffs. With only two innings to go, the coach called time in order to make a pitching change. Three players were capable of pitching. Sean was not one of them. He was one of the weakest players on the team. So to everyone's surprise, including Sean's, the coach motioned for him to come to the mound. Now there's a rule at this level of play that if any team uh, reaches 10 runs, the game is over, or uh, the spread of, of the score was, was a lead of 10 runs, then the game was declared over. So everyone thought the coach had given up and brought Sean in precisely to allow the other team to score two more runs and end the game. But the coach knew Sean had always wanted to pitch and that he may never play baseball again. There was already one out when Sean reached the mound, and to everyone's surprise, he managed to throw enough strikes to get two of the next three batters out, and that ended the top half of that inning. As he came off the field, Sean displayed the broadest smile you could ever want to see on a child's face. But the biggest surprise came in the next inning. Sean returned to the mound with confidence few of us knew he had, Sean got the first batter to ground out. He walked the next two before another batter popped out. And then Sean struck out the last batter of that inning. And when he did so, something happened that Sean, neither Sean nor any of us could have predicted. While we parents applauded Sean's efforts, his teammates converged on the mound and bombarded him with praise. He was the cause of their celebration, despite the fact that the game was not even over, but its outcome was a lost cause. The opposing team could not understand why our players were celebrating when we were losing and so far behind. But a parent from that team understood the significance when we heard her say aloud, I wish my son played for your team. That is what grace looks like and feels like. Sean was not chosen to pitch because he was a good pitcher or, or even a decent athlete, quite the opposite. He was given an opportunity to pitch as a gift. And what happened as a result of that gift changed everything about the meaning of that game. 
It was no longer a matter of winning and losing, but all about being valued and believed in and celebrated. Sean's teammates caught something of the meaning and significance of the event and were able to celebrate an altogether different kind of victory that day. The writer of Psalm 103 has been forgiven. She knew the weight of her broken relationship and did not think it possible to avoid the consequences of her wrongdoing. She may have pleaded not guilty, but deep down inside, she knew it was only wishful thinking. It would be only a matter of time before judgment was pronounced, guilty as charged. But expecting one thing, she got another. Expecting to be condemned, she was given grace. Expecting the worse, she received something surprisingly better. No doubt, she was familiar with the words from Israel's story at Mount Sinai. Having disappointed God by their careless and offensive behavior on the heels of God's dramatic rescue of them from their oppression in Egypt, the people of God now hear Moses recite these words related to God's covenant faithfulness from Exodus 3, pardon me, from Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord your God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Ancient words spoken to her ancestors suddenly became words of grace spoken for her. We're not told how forgiveness was conveyed to her, only that she experienced it as an unexpected gift of transformation. What may have been recited in her head now reverberated in her heart and everything in her life changed with it. She understood God not as angry or judgmental, but merciful and life-giving not doling out what she deserved, but supplying what she needed, not demanding her to be on her best behavior, but knowing how weak, feeble, and finite she is, yet treating her with compassion and dignity. Her standing and status were elevated such that she knew what it meant to hold her head up high and not be bowed down with shame. People who experience God's grace do not mistake forgiveness as automatic, nor reduce confession to some quick-fix ritual, as in, do the deed, confess the wrong, and have your slate wiped clean. Forgiveness is not a transaction. Through faith in Christ, we realize that forgiveness comes at a cost, which Jesus bears so we don't have to. You know you've experienced forgiveness as a gift when you understand the gift is connected to the giver. We're forgiven to be rightly related to God and not cleared of all wrong to return to an old way of self-determined life. The evidence of experiencing grace in the form of forgiveness, or any other form for that matter, is to dedicate oneself to living a life of gratitude not to put the gift away and store it for safekeeping, but rather to display it openly and publicly so there's no mistaking where it's come from. 
I recently read Frederick Bachman's novel, A Man Called Uva, and I see it as a story of grace. Uva is a cranky, stubborn man whose life closed in on him when his wife died. As the narrator states, he was a man of black and white, and she was color, all the color he had. In his aloneness, Uva has little reason to live. And then new neighbors move in, far closer inside his personal boundaries than he's comfortable with. Yet their constant need of his help and refusal to accept his rebuffs become for him a kind of grace that reorients his life and gives him a whole new purpose for living. Eugene Peterson reminds us that if we forget God's blessings, soon we're only able to see our own efforts at making the best of a bad situation. We're only able to see our own haphazard attempts at capitalizing on opportunities available to us. If we forget God's blessings, we slip into what psychologists label as sensory deprivation, and we become unresponsive to the transforming work of God, not only in moments of crisis, but also in everyday casual circumstances. Psalm scholar Klaus Westermann sees the importance of not forgetting God's blessings with offering our praise to God. He says, quote, only those who praise do not forget. The secret of praise is the power it has to connect us with God. Forgetting God and turning away from God always begins when praise has become silent. For this reason, I think Psalm 103 is instructive for our own anticipation of life after COVID-19. I think it's natural for us to want to return to what life was like before, before our sheltering in place and our isolation and distance from one another. We want everything to go back to normal, but we also have to face the fact that when we emerge from this pandemic, life will not be what it once was. It will be new and different. And none of us know what this even means or how much. After so much change in such a compressed series of months, it's hard to welcome more change ahead. But what if like the psalmist, we recall times of having known God's grace in the past and how those experiences changed the way we ordered our lives, then maybe we need to think of the future not as something unwanted, but possibly as something God is bringing about for our own good. If we're willing to trust God, then the future may hold something far better than we might have ever expected or even imagined. The call not to forget God's benefits reminds us of the primary thing that integrates our lives and gives them meaning. And the summons to praise God offers us participation in what alone is truly steadfast and sustaining. So we have every reason to join with the psalmist in saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. 
Bless God's holy name. Amen.